This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. Series 2 was recorded over the summer of 2017. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. I'm not sure I remember the very first time I met Mike Bartlett. I know he was a participant in one of the young writers groups that I ran at the Royal Court in the early years of the last decade. After a few weeks, I became quietly aware of his wry humour and quiet but forensic determined intelligence. But I do remember one early encounter with his work very clearly. I was sitting outside the site in the back garden having a cigarette and reading students' plays. By this stage, Mike was in what we called the invitation group. He delivered an early draft of his newest play. I opened it to read and was slightly taken aback and then thrilled that Bartlett seemed to have written a play imagining the future life of Prince William a life in my vague memory of political edge and sexual adventure. I was struck by its audacity and its daring, at a time when most students were handing in re-peddlings of Sarah Kane or Leo Butler plays. Here was a writer who was writing with wit and insight, compassion and audacity about major political themes and containing that within the unlikely gesture of a play about an imagined future of our royal family. Sometimes, in jobs like mine, then... You just know you're in the presence of something special. Well, I think it's fair to say that Prince William has let those of us who read Mike's early play down by avoiding a career of political edge and sexual adventure. Mike Bartlett very much hasn't. Over the last 10 years, he's established himself as one of the most confident and authoritative voices of his generation. He's written widely and with great success for television and film and become a playwright of international significance. He was the resident dramatist at the Royal Court in 2007, where his play Mike child restructured the theatre downstairs and while he went on to write brilliantly for the Hampstead Theatre and the Young Vic his play Bull is one of my favourite of all of his works. The National Theatre, Earthquakes in London and 13 at the Olivier provoking widespread acclaim and the Almeida Theatre game a startling reunion with Sasha Wares and King Charles III proving that you should never let a great idea go no matter how long it takes to reimagine it completely and take it to extraordinary international success. He has returned again and again to the Royal Court. His play Artifacts turned the third floor rehearsal room into a tense and taut reimagining of an office space. Payne's Plough's Love, Love, Love was a historical drama charting the shifting entitlements of a generation of family formed in 1968 and Cock, a masterpiece of a chamber play, a tender three-hander exploring the agonies and difficulties of love and commitment. He's won two Olivier Awards in the same night. He's directed with great success. He's seen his plays produced all over the world. But I think... The achievement of his I most envy is the review that he got for the da- from the Daily Mail for the sparkling television reimagining of Charles III. They described it as shameful, vile, pathetic tosh. I think if these are the kind of notices the Daily Mail are giving you, then you are definitely doing something roundly, resiliently, brilliantly right. Mike Bartlett, welcome to the Royal Court. Wow. <laughs> That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, it might have been. It's uh, worth coming just for that. I like, I might go now. I think I've heard the best the, bit. The, uh, I'm, but was it right? Was my memory right about that play? About I, the William play? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was Prince William. It was, it was called uh, uh, A Thin Place Between Earth and Heaven. That's right. And it was about <laughs> William retreating to the island of Iona after university before embarking on a career to... Um, to uh, sort of find himself, and he yeah. he saw visions of Diana, but he also saw Henry VIII and other kings. Right. Um, I think it was heavy on imagery and low on drama, but you know. But the gesture of it was was pretty cool. It was pretty exciting. I remember at the time, and in my head, he's quite edgy. He was quite a kind of edgy, sexy prince. As he, well, maybe it's my memory. Yeah, no, I think I think maybe I was sort of thinking he might be. I think we knew less about. I knew less about him because yeah. he 
he'd been a you know as a child he didn't know who he was and then at university that we weren't allowed to yeah and now we you know he's had 10 years more of yeah. public life so we don't it's know him now but at the time he was a bit of an yeah harry's harry's been more fun yeah, Harry is, Harry's fascinating, isn't he? I quite like him. Yeah, yeah I quite yeah. like him. The, um, I, anyway, I'm glad my memory wasn't completely yeah, deluded. but I don't have that play anymore. It's the only play of mine. I've lost it. I've got a very early draft, but they went through many drafts like the one you read. And for some reason, it's just it's just erased, so it, it's a lost play. Electronically, it's complete. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. They're rare things nowadays, lost plays. Yeah, exactly, because you, you email them and whatever. So, yeah, if anyone has it, then... It's unlikely. <laughs> you are probably the only person who might, and um, I, well, I I'm very much doubt I, it. I mean, Ola might have kept it. I don't think I kept all the plays that I read from students because there would have been shitloads, <laughs> but Ola might have it somewhere. Yeah. Right, wow, this could be the start of a fantastic investigation. But yes, let's anyway. <laughs> it's not the purpose of the question I normally <laughs> The question I normally ask people as their first question uh, isn't, is my memory entirely addled or was that right? Uh, but is, when was the first time that you went to the theatre? Um, the f- I think the first thing I can remember, and I don't know where it was, was a was a production of um, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, oh, and it wow. was in the sort of barn. You know, it's those one of those childhood memories where you remember the sensation of it more than you remember yeah the, sensory the, memories, the, yeah. the, the details. And it, uh, so it was a barn. I remember there being like flame, like flaming torches. Cool. You know, I don't know if it was, but I remember straw on the ground and it being like. And, you know, a, a summer's evening, and then performing this play, and I think I probably remember that because it because of all those, you know, sensory things. Yeah. Um, and and where, that, do you know yeah. where it was? It would have been near where I grew up, like in Oxfordshire somewhere. Right. Um, and how? And you pre-cognitive, so kind of like young, pre-six yeah. years old or pre-seven. Yeah, probably yeah. four or five. Wow. Yeah. How yeah. Amazing. Duncan McMillan has a theory <laughs> that you retell the same story over and over again. And he's convinced that I tell the Pied Piper of Hamelin over and over again, because that's the first... <laughs> that every play that you write is yeah, fundamentally... You, you're a, yeah, you're retelling. I, I was going to, yeah. Um, so maybe that's, that's what I'm doing. What is that about the Pied Piper, then? It's a story of a dissident figure... Yeah, who comes Coming into, into a culture to save it. Yeah. Uh, and then being outlawed. Yeah. Society's broken. Society's broken. Faces justice through... It's King Charles III. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's no, not. That's not a sure. bit of a stretch. That's <laughs> yeah, a bit of a yeah. stretch. The um, so you grew up in Oxfordshire. Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, wh- wh- how accessible was things like theatre for you? Was was culture for you as a child? Were you surrounded by theatre? You go often. Were you, were you a big reader? No, I was. I was totally. It's amazing because Oxford now doesn't feel very far away from London, where theatre was. But at the time, I didn't see very much theatre until. I mean, I remember very clearly shopping and fucking coming to the Oxford Playhouse and it being the first new play Mm. that I was even aware of. Really, there was all the plays on the school bookshelf, which were like Shakespeare, Chekhov, Mm. maybe Albie, maybe Pinter, but Mm. they were all. You know, the contemporary writers were from the sixties, right? Which that that was it. There was no one else past that. And then at the Oxford Playhouse, they normally had things back then of sort of. Corin Redgrave reads, reads the letters of Oscar Wilde or right. things like that. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then this play arrived, Shopping and Fucking, which was clearly not that and was a new play. Well, did you see it? What age were you when you... Uh, when that, yeah, it was been 16, be, I think. Yeah, so it's like the late yeah. 90s, mid-90s, yeah. late 90s. Did you so, go and see it? Yeah, we saw it, yeah, yeah. 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 And did you so, go as a school? You go, I think we did. I think we went as a GCSE group. Great, what an enlightened was, GCSE teacher. Yeah, well, they, were, they were. my school was brilliant for that. Yeah. Was there was really Abingdon good. School, right? Yeah, Which is, right. Uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by the kind of public school education. Is that, is that, that's a private school, it's a boarder's school. It's, it's a private school, it's mostly um, day boys... Right. With a small contingent of boarding. And day boys are people... It's it's an all-boys school. All-boys school. And And the day boys... That means you go in the day and you leave at the end of... Like a normal school. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Okay. Um, Is that what you did or were you boarding... Uh, no, no, I was that. I, right. so I lived in Abingdon. So it used to be a grammar school. So I went to a state school and then it was like actually 10 people from that state school, primary school, yeah. went on to Abingdon. So it still had quite a lot of people from the town. Right. I think because it used to be a grammar school yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, and it meant it was, it was, and also it's, it's not, it's not a public school. It's not, it's a sort of mediocre, um, in a best possible way, yeah. uh, private school. It had, yeah. you know, the head had ambitions for it to be something more. But, but what, what's, what was great about it was it wasn't particularly, great at sport or and it didn't produce brilliant business alumni yeah 
Um, but it kept on producing, despite its best efforts, it kept on producing musicians like Radiohead oh, and actors like, like Toby Jones and David Mitchell. And <laughs> it seems like this history of producing um, artists, despite its best efforts to stop that <laughs> until recently. Um, and so when we were there... Have like, they surrendered now? To I the think they, they, they've embraced they it just all make yeah, artists. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what they do. The, I read something when I was researching this that they did a premiere of... Didn't they do the... the didn't they do a premiere of Earthquakes in London or something? Yeah. The, yeah. the same night as it premiered at the National? Uh, no, it wasn't. No, it, it wasn't was, was the next it was, it was. No, it was sort of just after the... Right, OK. But it was, the, it was my drama teacher from that taught me. Yeah. Is still there. And so... Fantastic. Has done the play with his students, which That's is brilliant. It's really brilliant. lovely. And he was fantastic. What's his name? His name's Jeremy Taylor. And, and introduced... Go on, tell me about Jeremy Taylor. Well, he was used to be in Harvey and the Wallbangers as the singer... And um, uh, he, he... They were in a punk... They were sort of like a cross... Yeah, I don't really know. Like I he heard of Harvey. Yeah, the yeah. Bangers. They were sort of 50s singing meets punk or something. I don't really yeah. know. Um, yeah, great. Then he became Captain Bandstand on Playbus. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and he, but he, he, is, uh, he is the loveliest, most, like, joyful and energetic presence as a person. Oh. And he came in... I remember he and he came in when we went to sixth form actually, and was so sort of open about, um, you know, uh, he, you know he said I've never taught Brecht before. I don't think about Brecht, so let's all learn sort of together. And he came one day. I think I've got it. I know what the distancing effect is. And there's something that feels very theatre is yeah. to have that that open like joyful sharing thing. And he was you know a real inspiration in that in that way to sort of believe that you could you could do it. But you don't need to do it. You can just do it as an amateur if you want. You can just enjoy acting. You can enjoy writing. Great. But so he was never sort of pushing. You know, some drama teachers might push people into yeah. thinking it's all about career and whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. he had done all sorts of weird and wonderful things and had such a sense of humour that you never felt that was the aim. It, the aim was just what are we doing today? <laughs> what's you know this school production is as important as what's going on at the national. And oh, fantastic. That's what you want, isn't that's it? That's drama teacher. Really extraordinary. But he's still there now, so he's. Um, He's, yeah, he's, he's great. Is he, was he the most defining teacher for you? How was school? Did you, you, you enjoyed your school by the sound of it. Yeah, I, yeah, I did. I, mean, I was very lucky, I think, to go to a, a private school that particularly had like facilities for theatre. So, it, so you know, that let us, um, let me direct a play when I was 15. And, right. you know what I mean? And, but without yeah. a teacher standing over my shoulder, bringing down my neck, they just sort of let us get on with it. Yeah. And um, they did do it, particularly in the sixth form, a lot of school trips to see... Um, all sorts of age-inappropriate things, which yeah. is what you want, yeah, isn't it? It's, it it's great. So, uh, you know, it's really lucky. And, um, and partic yeah, particularly that, I think, autonomy, that you don't feel... You feel like you're sort of all learning it together and you get opportunities to... to if you write a play, you can put it on. If you want to direct, OK, direct a play. Yeah. It's not just productions of Oliver where yeah. you're playing fifth boy to the, <laughs> the left, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, it was really formative. Yeah, really formative, definitely. The... Um, you acted at school, yeah, yeah, and uh, and and directed. So, what did you direct? Tell me what. I was just I was distracted thinking about whether you were at the same time as Radiohead. No, no, I was. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of sitting here. <laughs> no, thinking, was he at school? Radiohead? No, no, they 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 had been there like eight years before. And so, like, we, in the textbooks, you know, you, write, so we, you had to write your name in the front of a textbook and you'd yeah. see all the people who had it before you. Yeah. So if you were lucky, like the golden ticket, <laughs> you'd find Tom York with the form name in it. And then you and nick the book. Then you nick the book. So yeah. they, were, they were getting less, less prominent as you went through the school. That's right. But, but it was sort of inspirational. You did, you did know that a group of people came together, made yeah. a thing, yeah. and now we're doing it around the world. That's and I think that is so important when you're starting out to think there is a... Path I didn't know anyone in theatre, and I, I didn't know anyone in theatre, really after university. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any contacts at all. But, mm. but just knowing that you can make art and other people might like it, yes, is is quite a big thing. To I think it's really important. It's really fundamental. Mm. It's the notion that you're entitled to do it because other people have done it in the past who are a bit like you. Yeah, yeah. And I know it sounds like I was in Oxfordshire, and I'm a man, and I'm white, and I went to a <laughs> private school. How much fucking entitlement do you need? <laughs> But I, I, but you know, I'd say I'm also was quite shy at times. I was yeah. also quite, I was very insecure. I think yeah. I didn't have any family in arts at all, no. like teaching mostly, and so, so it, it wasn't a world that I had any 
way into whatsoever. So mm. you, you need a bit, I, I, or, or, or didn't know how you made art or what art yeah, was. Exactly. Really. I had a yeah. very similar experience and have, can be apply very similar adjectives to myself as well. Mm. But it is that notion of it being something you were allowed to do. Yeah. Rather than just go on and be a teacher or be a lawyer, was what everybody assumed yeah. that I was going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were all always frightened by the idea of me wanting to be a writer. Oh, really? <laughs> Quite a long time. Yeah. Pretty much yeah. until Curious Incident. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> they stopped asking me. Yeah, they stopped asking me those yeah. questions at family Christmas parties. Well. So how's it going? You making any money out of it? You going to get a proper yeah. job? Anything <laughs> I would have seen? No, nothing. Nothing you would have seen. <laughs> Yeah. The, um, when did you start writing for your own enjoyment as opposed to writing in school? You've always been a writer. I, I remembered recently, because I, I thought I didn't really write until university, but I remembered I wrote a little... I think I'd, I'd seen Pulp Fiction about 14, 15. Brilliant. And I then bought the screenplay so I could see what it looked like, Great. what the dialogue looked like. Yeah. And off the back of that, I wrote, like, a probably very... Uh, well, it was very influenced by that, but it was about a two teenagers meeting on, on a bench and sort of falling in love. That's my version of Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's get rid of the guns. In some, <laughs> in some villages in Oxfordshire, yeah. that's pretty that's transgressive. Right. I know. That's right. Um, uh, but the dialogue was... I think, I remember, Chris, the dialogue was like his dialogue in that it wasn't how people talk in reality. Great. It was formal and it had a, a rhythm. And, and I think that's the first time I remember sort of going, oh, that's what dialogue is as opposed to... You know, transcribing Conversa transcribing conversation, conversation yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, little bits. And then I think I only started writing, like, a play at university. Where did you go? Went to Leeds. You um, did go to Leeds, because I was talking... Uh, uh, I'm not saying you did go to Leeds as though you'd got the right answer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we'll put a sound effect in then. Yeah. <laughs> well, well done. I was chatting, uh, I don't know what order these podcasts are going to go out on, but either in a few episodes' time or a few episodes ago, I was talking to Chris Thorpe, oh. who was also... At Leeds, it sounds like an incredibly uh, just lively theatrical culture at Leeds University. It was, it was, and particularly because of Un Unlimited and yeah. Chris. Because again, it was like we would when we were students on this course, which was an amazing course. Everyone did English and theatre studies. No one, so that was a single honours course, which meant no one just did theatre studies. So if you're doing a theatre studies, you did English as well, right? Which meant you were doing the academic side. You were looking into post-modernism and post-colonialism but then you would also have this church building with three studio theatres to mm. mess about in really and learn and if you wanted to put something on you'd do it you'd, but it meant you could apply the theory and practice and you could it was and you know and you were with really like-minded people yeah and then on top of that and also the year was only 16 people in each year mm -hmm. on top of that you oh. had this company unlimited who had been on the course yeah. and then formed their own company yeah. and were now touring britain doing this amazing you know, Worcester Groupie, Forced Entertainment yeah. work. But crucially, yeah, with a writer in the middle, with, with Chris in the middle, which did sort of slightly make them stand out from some of those groups because sometimes they just do a play, like his play Static, right. I remember yeah. seeing, and it being really like, oh, wow, that's just two people talking, and it's <sighs> remarkable. Um, I shared... He won't remember this because I think he was quite drunk, but <laughs> we shared 9-11 together, Chris Thorpe. He was coming over to our house... And, or he wasn't, or I think we were rehearsing a play and everything, of course, just got cancelled. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, you didn't know what was going to happen to the world. This could be that moment when the Third World War starts. Yeah. You know, you just didn't have a clue. I remember him coming over and some other people coming over and him just, I remember him really clearly sat on the, our sofa, drunk, just shaking his head and going, it's the fucking end of the world. It's the end of the world. And it was really like, <laughs> like... You know what I mean? Like, it was, yeah. for some reason, I remember him being very resonant about that. Yeah. And thinking, yeah, yeah, you're right. He still kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of, he's yeah. still resonant and shaking his head and, uh, head and predicting the end of the world, but he's, he's, he's ain't drinking anymore. But, uh, yeah. He's an important figure. Yeah, he's and an again, a playwright, figure. probably the first playwright that I got to know, who, a yeah. person who was an actual person who wrote plays and people paid him to write plays or yeah. he put them on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And but you were so you were writing at university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started to write some plays and and producing them there. Yeah, we we did them a bit there and then taking things to Edinburgh as well. Had, every had, summer. had you stopped acting by that point? Or but because when I first met you here, you described yourself. I remember having another cigarette in the alley, and you saying that you were a director as much as you're a writer. I wanted to be a director at yeah. that point. Yeah, that and and I did until certainly a few years into after university coming to London yeah 
Um, so I wrote a few things, but yeah, I was mostly directing and doing bits of acting. Who um, were you directing, just like, rather than what you were writing? What, was, what were the things you directed that affected you most or you were most proud of? Uh, well, I, I, in a way, that's why I was writing, because I, I, I directed my own plays that I wrote, but I, was, I sort of struggled to find things that I genuinely sort of... Again, it was access, because, of course, you got the entire... You've got all plays ever to direct, potentially, but... Yeah. Um, but I just couldn't find anything that was... Like, I did a version of Midsummer Night's Dream, which I sort of rewrote a bit. And then and uh, I did uh, Liz Lockhead's version of Dracula. Um, but they weren't... You know, it, it's nothing... I wish there was a list of sort of amazing <laughs> plays. Like I say, these were the ones that I was acting. But, yeah. but I wasn't... And I think, I think also, crucially, the course that I was doing was far more about um, devising theatre and sort of postmodern theatre. Right. They, there were a couple of courses on writers, but it wasn't. That was sort of seen as the old way of making theatre. Yeah. And Force Entertainment was the group. Yeah. You know, former company. That's how the, yeah. that's where the future lies. And so we were more into that sort of stuff, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know you'd write a text for that. You wouldn't write necessarily a play. What year did you graduate? Two thousand and two. And came down to London. There was a sort of yeah. There was a couple about a year and a half where I stayed, went back home, and had a crisis about realizing what taxes and you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, as I think a lot of people do. And, that. <laughs> yeah. and also, was I going to form a theatre company? Yeah. Or was I going to try and become a director? Yeah. In the end, yeah, I went okay. I'll, I'll try and become a director, but I didn't. Yeah, know anything about it really? Yeah. Um, the uh, was the, and you. My memory of you joining the Young Writers Programme is about two thousand and three. Three. Yeah, it was about halfway through my time there. Yeah. So, so you must have got involved with the Royal Court fairly quickly after coming down. Yeah, I think so. I think I think it was a way in. I thought. Did you come to London with the ambition of making? You came to London like like Dick Whittington, heading yes. out to <laughs> London to make your theatrical fortune, uh, or to become a director, to become a writer. Yeah, yeah, to become. A, yeah, I thought I'm going to try and get assistant jobs and right. do that thing, you know, and maybe if I can be Sam Mendes and run the Donmar Warehouse. Yeah. By 26, so yeah. that that'll probably happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I really thought like maybe that that's how you do it. That's how yeah. you you know. Um, but the problem was, I would I would get I'd write a great cover letter to get an interview for, for an assistant director job, and I'd turn up and just be crap at the interview. So I just was not good at all. I, they they'd ask me what influences are, and I'd say my mum. Or, you know, because <laughs> I, well, I now that's think that is the best. Answer. But at the time, I was like, well, no, I'm supposed to say this list of things, and I don't know enough about it, and, yeah. um, and I just, and the truth was, I'm sort of glad about that because what I didn't have uh, until I came to the Royal Court yeah. was craft, and my right. my university course were really open about. It. I said, we're not teaching you to do anything useful. This is a course about thinking and right. concepts. Right, you're going to have to come out and train. And I didn't until yeah. I came to the Royal Court, right. and then on the course that you taught, we we would we were you were very open and brilliant. It was brilliant for me about you know nuts and bolts, what is drama, what story, what's character, what's plot, all yeah. that stuff. Which I had spent three years making on a theatre degree and never really encountered that stuff. So that was a real whether I was going to be a director or a writer. That stuff was so crucial and was a big turning point. It was a big it was a big time for me in my life. That whole time, and my memory of it is, you know, the, there was we did work with maybe sixty writers a year in those introduction courses, and actually the the fifty five a year who've now gone on to work in banks or as school teachers or whatever uh, informed and affected me as much as the five per year who are now writing professionally. But there's a group of you who, in my imagination at least, have remained very close. Who like people like you, like Duncan McMillan, like Jack Thorne, um, uh, Claire was working. Claire Lismore, who's yeah. now your wife, yeah. partner, wife, yeah, actual, actual wife, wife actual yeah, yeah, married actual wife. wife. Yeah. She was working as an assistant. I don't know if it was on the same course that you. No, it wasn't what? mine, but she, I think it was. Natalie Abrahami was right. So there's a whole was, load yeah. of people That's who, right. who 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 had defined theatre for the next next kind of ten years, and I always say I'm vampiric. And that I, I get more out of the people I teach than I ever teach, but um, I, that's very that's very lovely of you. But I, <laughs> I have to go on and say not true. I think I think I think it was such. I think you were, you know, you um, not to blow smoke, but to blow smoke. I think you are not only a fantastic playwright, but I think you are a phenomenal teacher. And I actually, it's not a coincidence that so many of those people 
were in that room because, it, again, a bit like I was saying about my teacher from school, it wasn't just the nuts and bolts stuff you were teaching. It was, it was about... Uh, you would come out, I remember so clearly going into the Royal Court on those groups, my heart pounding because I'm going to the Royal Court and there's an actual playwright who's going to be teaching us and this is just devastating, well, I probably should leave. And coming out going, I want to get home to write my play. I want to write, 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 I just want to write something. I'm f- full of inspiration. And everybody felt that. And I think that that, you know, you... you I sometimes, when I'm thinking, you know, when, you know, when you get stuck too much into career, money, yeah. uh, or, or just on a project like casting and we've got, you know, all mm. those sorts of knotty things. Yeah. I often sort of think back to that room and those those um, moments as a sort of palate cleanse to go, well, what are you doing this for? And what what is the sort of... Basically, it's just about being in a room and writing and imagining and keeping it political, keeping it interesting and relevant, but but not getting stuck in career or yeah. you know, any of that stuff. Man, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to change the subject quickly because. I, yeah, <laughs> sorry, no, sorry, it, don't apologise. I'm it's really true. touched. I'm genuinely touched, and now I need to talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> you have to edit around this bit. The um, we worked together for two years, maybe a year and a half, two years in total. In the invitation groups, maybe it was less than that. Um, wh- wh- how were you kind of living in London at that time? You kind of what, 24, 25 years old? Yeah. You what? What jobs were you doing? So I'd I'd got uh, about. Eight months after I'd graduated, I started teaching at Stagecoach um, schools for kids. Right. Which are like these weekend things, and they come into an hour of drama, an hour of dance, an hour of music. Brilliant. And so I started doing that back in Oxfordshire. Mm. So I'd do two schools on a Saturday, and then eventually I did two schools on a Sunday as well. And they paid the, um, unlike Tentwork, they paid £20 an hour. So right, great. I could ju- if I didn't, then I got a Friday night one as well. Yeah, and I could just about make the same money from a weekend of that that I could make if I did like six hour temp work from Monday to Friday, which Brilliant. left me some time in the working week to to do this stuff. So I, I for years, I I would have a week in sort of London doing whatever I wanted to do, or right. you know, uh, in in my flat with you know not much furniture or whatever, <laughs> and then drive back on a. Friday night to teach all weekend, often quite hungover, and then I can say that now. Um, and then um, yeah, and then Monday, you know, go back to try and be a writer, and and uh, and that if I got little bits of extra work, that just about worked out at the time. Great, and it was trying to be a writer. You did direct, didn't you direct Duncan's first play? Is this me misremembering? Uh, Claire, Claire directed Duncan's first play. Ah, um, how to. Kill a lobster. The humo- most humane way to kill a lobster. The most humane way to kill a lobster. Have you direct? Did you direct a new play of your peers? I'm, this is total misremembering. Uh, I, Edit I, all of this out, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, you? Did you direct? Did you continue to direct? Not, n- no bits, but right. not not really. I, I directed Honest by Dave Moore at Northampton, but that was later. Oh yeah, how oh, lovely. Um, uh, but. Uh, no, I think by a time so by the time I was like twenty four, twenty five, probably after yeah. the course and yeah. and also once I think uh Hampstead had commissioned me for a a youth play. Great. Of their youth group and Nabokov, James and George yeah. had taken interest Oh well and, and one of the other big things was uh the old Vic twenty four hour plays. Great. Was where a lot of us met, I think. It's the first time I met James and George. So the Old Vic do these 24-hour plays, the yes. Old Vic Theatre, organise 24 hours where they gather emerging playwrights from throughout the country and lock them in a room for 24 hours and then get young emerging directors from all over the country to direct the plays. With yeah? with young actors With well. young actors, yeah. great. And they still do it, don't they? It's still a thing that happens. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And so you did that. We did the first one. You yeah. were locked overnight. Yeah, it was it was horrific. It was not a good writing experience. <laughs> I had my first proper panic attack that I'd never had oh, ever. I, I, I was like, oh, this is panic attack. Oh, I better lie down. Um, <laughs> uh, but but what was great about it was, yeah, met James Grieve and George Perrin mm. um, and and we got on really well with James and we started to work together and they gave me a sort of £500 seed commission. Great. Um, which then became Artefacts eventually. Great. Um, are they set up Nabokov or they're on the yes, point? Yes, yeah. they set it up. Yeah, they set it up. Yeah, so they were doing short play nights. Yeah. And that was the other thing around then is everybody was doing short play yeah, nights. they were, weren't they? There was um, a lot of that. I was, Alice Birch was saying that she was doing a lot of short plays. So was that useful for you? Yeah, really useful yeah. because it was, you, you know, we... 
I mean, we recognised how useful it was, and we set up this one called the Apathists, which was an ironic name, <laughs> bad name. And um, but the idea of it was, we we said we're not trying to do this for our career. We're trying to just get better by actually writing and having it performed and seeing it on stage, rather than just spending lots of time in meetings and talking about dramaturgy and yeah, just yeah. actually getting and making a bit of theatre. Right. Because at that time, a lot of the theatres weren't doing first plays by new writers. There was a bit of a bottleneck. Yeah, um, I think Ian was doing. Ian Rickson, who was running the court at the was time, doing was doing third or fourth exactly. plays. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, and uh, yeah, so so and in response, there were a lot of writers who couldn't get their plays on, and right. were finding a way to keep going. In a yeah. Way. The uh, tell me about a little bit about uh, George Perrin and James Grieve, because I like when these podcasts talk about people who've affected the whole ecology of playwriting, and I think they definitely have in the last decade. Yeah. They're now running Payne's Plough. Yeah. They set up Nab- Nabokov. Yeah. What what influence have they had on you? What have they how have they informed you? Uh massively. I mean I think they were the sort of in a way like the first, there must have been this in the past, but at the time they were the most entrepreneurial um people around in terms yeah. of I don't mean that in terms of money at all, but in terms of art and not waiting for permission to make something. Yeah. So we want to make a theatre company, we'll just do it. We'll do it, and then we work out, actually, we want to do new writing. Right, we're doing that. And since we're doing new writing, we'll now organise short play nights, we'll organise arts nights, we'll combine disciplines. Yeah. And they are just kind of unstoppable in in not seeking permission or job opportunities, in inverted commas, mm. and being very... Uh, being sort of uniquely and very open and generous to all different sorts of writers. Mm. So sometimes it's writers that... Uh, so I think for me or James Graham, they gave us some of our earliest opportunities, and uh, we've gone on to do other things and you know <laughs> West End things, things and things you? like that. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are other writers that they work with that they know are never going to be that, but yeah. they believe in and they yeah. and they've always felt, had that. Yeah. And they also I think have always been at the centre of creating an ecology of artists and writers who talk to each other and work together. Yeah. So you, exactly, if you look back now, you, you'll see almost all that group. I've worked with them at some point. Yeah, yeah, it's um, really, yeah, really, really and they stuck to it as well. They haven't yeah. so far. They're they still doing it now with Payne's you know, Plough. Yeah. yeah, and if they, you know, if now they go and run the national, um, <laughs> or they split up and do separate things, that's fine. But yeah. but uh, it's sort of amazing that you know, fifteen years, they're basically stuck to what they believe is the way to make theatre, and they're doing it brilliantly. In two thousand and seven, I think this is right. Dominic Cook was the new artistic director of the Royal Court. I think it's not unfair to say that Ian had identified the fact that Stephen Doldry tended to produce first plays by writers and then not their second, third and fourth. So consciously produced, like, me, David Eldridge, Roy Williams, the whole generation of writers did our third, fourth plays. But then Dominic came in in that first season, my memory of that first season, actually, yeah, there was a kind of strange inter-season where he did Rhinoceros and the Arsonists and the Wally Shawn season. And then the season later... Bang! A whole slate of new British playwrights that uh, arrived. I have a memory of giving the literary manager at the time a pile of scripts by writers and saying, these are all great, coming out of the Young Writers Programme and nothing happening with them. And then a year and a half later, they were all being produced by Dominic Cook. And you were at the vanguard of that because you were a resident dramatist 2007 and they produced My Child. Yeah? Yeah. Um, what was it like being resident dramatist here? What, 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 what did that involve? What does it mean to be resident dramatist at the Royal Court? Uh, well, I mean, the first thing that they did, which was amazing, was they put on my play. They commissioned uh, another play just after, just before that opened. Yeah. And then they got I got money to be, have a placement at the court, which meant that I could stop all my other work for the first time for a year. Great. So, and it's stopped stagecoach. I did stop stagecoach. Those poor kids. This drunken man walking in, sitting in a chair and giving them some runabout exercises came to an end. Um, uh, but uh, but it was really important for me because it was like, right, I've got a year to really concentrate on this yeah. and, and and be resident, not just have it as a sort of a name, but mm. to try and be... So I, I sort of worked out when Leo Butler wasn't using his office and mm. snuck in there. Um, and I, I think... Um, I think you said to me, like, make the most of it, have have lunch with everybody, you know, have lunch with yeah. Joe Town and people that work here. And, and yeah. so I tried to do that and get to know everybody. Yeah. And uh, and that was brilliant. And and actually it was interesting over that, the commission from that year that Dominic gave me didn't go on. It was a, it was a play that didn't really work. Right. But I think while I was writing that, I wrote... I, uh, while I was here, I gave them uh, contractions, which had started as a 
as a, one of the 503 yeah. short play nights and I yeah. managed to finish it. That's right. And that one did go on. And yeah. then that started a process with the Royal Court where they commissioned me. I'd write a bad play. And while I was doing that, I'd secretly get them another play <laughs> and they'd do that one instead. Um, in, 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 uh, and, and Dominic was an important figure and Ruth Little was literary manager. Is that yeah. right? Or, yeah. yeah, Graham and then... Graham and then, and then, yeah, then Graham Graham Important figures then. in your development. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and Sasha Wares as well. Yeah, Sasha, was here. really fundamental... Um, it was a, it was an amazing and Ramin Gray was yeah. around as well um, yeah. and it was the you know it was like you look back so lucky to it was a Friday script meeting and you'd have Dominic Cook Ramin Gray Sasha Wears Graham Wybrow or Ruth um, Max Stafford Clark would often come in mm-hmm. um, and you you just you would sit there going I've now got to say what I think about this play to all these people and then face the most rigorous artistic. Um, Discussion, but where because it's theatre, you're allowed to say, "Well, you might all be right, but I still fucking love this play." And were you, you able know? to do that? Uh, no, I saw other people do that. I, I sat in the corner, being very quiet. Because <laughs> uh, my memory, you know. when I because I did the same thing in yeah. 2000, and I always say it's very rare in my life. I don't. I'd never say I was an academic or an mm. intellectual. But it's very rare in my life the times when I've just felt plain thick. Yeah, and sitting in those Friday script meetings, yeah, totally. I would just be like, I can't argue with these people because they just know so much more. Yeah, and uh, and so would end up. I have memory of about three meetings where I prepared what I was going to say about a play that I loved, and then everybody else said they hated it, so I just said, Yeah, I hated it too. Oh no, it's really. And then about a third of the way through, thought, right, fuck it. Yeah, that's yeah, can't, think... that can't that can't last. I'll, yes. I'll just be miserable. And then I learned. Yeah. It's the really important thing for me. I think that's exactly yeah. what I did, yeah. And realise that because it's art and because it's theatre, your opinion is totally valid, yeah. regardless of your ability to yeah. articulate it. Yeah, it's um, really, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was great. And Elise Dodgson, yeah. I got to know then, and I started to go on trips um, with the International. And te- and working as a teacher and, or working with writers at internet, where have you been? Uh, I've been quite a lot of places. Uh, Mexico, did yeah. a month in Mexico. Wow. Uh, Moscow, um, Palestine, twice. Is it possible to generalise and say what the experience of travelling and working in theatre abroad has brought you? Or impossible to generalise? It wouldn't be irrational to say, that's a stupid question. Um, <laughs> well, weird, I hadn't travelled very much. Mm. I don't think I had a passport when I first was at the court because um, I hadn't got the money or, or mm. hadn't happened. And so, but it, yeah, I think if I hadn't done it, I would have been a guy who grew up in Oxfordshire, went to a private school, went to Leeds University and then went to London. And that world's pretty small. And everything else I would have learnt about from the television or mm. the internet. And so in a way, the, the, you know, you hope that you're going to help the writers and you know, do, do some of the stuff you did for us and yeah. give some nuts and bolts stuff. But, but really, for me, it's about broadening perspective and hopefully empowering you to write about subjects that you wouldn't feel you could because yeah. you've at least like dipped your toe in a water in the water yeah. i've never written the, i find it I, I i would love to write about some of those countries and some of those experiences more directly but i don't want to write the embarrassed englishman abroad play which is the natural way you go you know i'm like you write a play about an english guy going to palestine or something mm. and i just don't think that's a valid i'm not sure what the purpose of that is mm-hmm. yeah so i'd love to find a way of, of writing about it but um but I haven't yet. But I think it does feed into, um, you know, when you're talking about Israel and Palestine, when you've yeah. been there, yeah. even though you, you know, you haven't necessarily had any experiences which are particularly unique, but you do feel like when they talk about things, you've seen them. You've been to Jerusalem, and that makes a huge difference. I, think. I always think as well, there's a degree to which the reason we travel is not to learn about the worlds we're going to, but to learn about the worlds we've left and go back to. Yeah, totally. You know, you go somewhere like Mexico and come back to London and you realise what London is in context of having been in Mexico. Absolutely. And uh, that's great for a writer. That yeah, 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 yeah. You've written so much in the last ten years that to continue the chronological breakdown of your career would mean we'd end up doing a four-hour podcast, which would be great for me, but Emily's got to go, Nusha's yeah. got to go, you've got to go, but I'd love to talk, like, just kind of like, say, three of the plays in, in more close, uh, if that's 
possible. Mm. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about cock, <laughs> just because I really wanted to say that sentence on the Good. podcast. It's actually a sentence I've said every on every single podcast, but in a different context. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a stunning play and a stunning production of a stunning play that kind of invented a theatre, because it was where George and James got the idea for Roundabout Theatre from. But tell me about the starting point of that play and the writing of that play. So that, that I was doing a, this playwrights exchange where I was in Mexico for a month and I was away from all my friends, away from Claire and uh, I would have various engagements each day that I had to go to to talk to people or meet people for, but a lot of the time I didn't have anything to do right. and so, but in this beautiful city and so I would sit for some of the day just in a cafe and write which I, you know, it's weird how rarely you actually get a, the purest moment to do that Mm. And uh, and then it's like, as a playwright, just absorbing things. So at the time, I had quite a few friends who didn't identify as um, as gay or straight. They mm-hmm. just had experiences and they were, fight, were struggling. You know, f- you can sort of feel how this was a long time ago now because it's such that's so, so much discussion about right. identity and the complicatedness of that. But at the time, they didn't know how to identify who they were and what mm. their experiences were. And also, why do I have to? And uh, then while I was there, I also, in Mexico, there are cockfights still. I think they're illegal, but they mm. still bring the, the, the cockerel around and show, show people. Um, and I did, so I didn't manage to see an actual cockfight, but I saw the stuff around it. Mm-hmm. And I saw a bullfight, so I was getting into the idea of interest in blood sports mm-hmm. and what sort of theatre they are. Because mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not like a sporting event. They're a different ritual, really. Yeah. And then I was staying in the Zona Rosa, which was the gay area of um, Mexico City. And like, so those sorts of ideas, I think, just came, I started writing some dialogue, mm. which is the first scene. And, mm. and those ideas sort of, um, yeah, wove their way into it. Do you start your plays writing dialogue? Are you a planner? Depend, or? Depends on the play. Oh, yeah. So that play, I mean, that's, I love doing that. That's yeah. one of the purest ways, just that pinter thing of yeah. two people talking and then yeah. you let it expand out. Yeah. But I've, I found that it's really hard to write a long play like that right. because you're writing on sheer energy and deduction of what happens next. Yes. And yeah. so those plays have never ended up being longer than 90 minutes. Right. Um, <clears throat> was Bull written in a similar way? So Bull was written at the same time oh, as Cock. Yeah, and then I got halfway through up to where the, the, the boss comes in. Yeah. And I stopped, and I was like, I, I got stuck. I didn't know what should happen. Mm. So I put it away, and I thought, I'll carry on with Cock, because that's the one that seems to have more to it. Mm. And it stayed in a drawer until 2011, I think, and then Claire found the drawer. And, <laughs> Literally um, found the drawer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, took it out and said, this is amazing. I said, yeah, but it doesn't, you know, I don't know what happened. She said, well, look at it. And then I realised, because it's a bullfight, there is no narrative structure to a bullfight, except it's a ritual where a bull comes out, is tormented and killed. And what, the reason I got stuck is I was looking for the plot twist, and there is no plot twist. Huh. And it's not a it's not a sporting thing. It's a it's a blood ritual. And once I got that, I could finish the play. So that's why there's a there was a gap of a few years between those two plays because I got a bit stuck on it. Just uh, tell me briefly, or not briefly, you can talk as much as you want. Uh, Claire Lismore, your wife, brilliant director. The production of Bull was astonishing. I think. Beautiful playwright as well, writing really beautifully. How, how is it living with another artist? What's that like? <laughs> uh, it's a really good question. Um, it's like weirdly normal. And it's it, what's weird is that we don't... Sometimes, we'll, on certain, certain things, we'll say, can you read this? I'm stuck. And mm. we'll really get into it. And we'll do a lot of work together on something. Right. As though we're at a cottage industry. Yeah. You know, because she is brilliant dramaturgically yeah. as well as everything else. And, and so that's great. And then other times, so I think when... Dr. Foster, my TV show went out. She hadn't seen a script. She didn't know much about it. Right. And, you know, she barely watched it. I yeah. think it's like, you know, so it's it sort of depends on the project. We have moments where we work very closely and then moments when when we have our own artistic life that we're yeah. not... And most of our, our relationship is not... We only work together properly after we got married. Like, that's not like a sort no. of <laughs> prudish thing. Um, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but I think it reflects that we sort of we met by getting on as people. Yeah, great. And then yeah. and then actually it took time to because we didn't want to risk the relationship by yeah. us to get working together and hating each other. Um, 
but it seemed to work all right. So yeah, it was yeah. well. It won the Olivia Award. It was absolutely yeah. startling production. Brilliant also production. Good production. We're going to have a postscript at the end of this podcast in which I suspect Anushka is going to talk to you about Doctor Foster. Okay, she's a big fan. The uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, t- when you talk about making big plays. There was a time when uh, a lot of people were talking about the breadth of your imagination, in particular 13 and, and earthquakes. Uh, earthquakes in London, which is startling Rupert Gould. It was Rupert Gould, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the Cottesloe, as was. Um, how do you go about conceiving a play like that if Cock is written intuitively? How was Earthquakes written? Um, it was a bit of a provocation from Ben Power at the right. time, who was at Headlong with Rupert. And... I think was aware that that a lot of us are writing um, studio-sized plays yeah. or royal court plays in inverted commas yeah. and had got into our own various versions of what that was. And so he said, I want you to write a play that's, that's not, that do all the things you're not allowed to do, that you think you're not allowed to do, and, and write a play that has scale. Mm. Um, and my way of doing that was I just... I, I came up with a title, which was Earthquakes in London, without mm. really knowing what it was mm. and I just decided that every idea I had for six months was part of this play um, somehow and I hadn't worked out how so I, all I had to do was put them all into a pot and then slowly work out oh that character is so that that lady is that lady and that idea so how were you recording the ideas in a, just in a, in a notebook in a, a, a physical notebook a, a kind of like a notebook you carry in your hand an exercise book kind of. yeah it's it's uh, yeah it's a bit it's a bit bigger it's like what is it? It's not A4, but it's a bit, yeah, a bit smaller than A4. But, yeah. So I can draw on it quite because I, I write quite big when I make notes and I draw spider right. diagrams. Um, what are the diagrams of? They are so. Uh, they might be for earthquakes in London. They would have been the individual stories. I would yeah. write them in sort of. They would be like in circles. Right. And then trying to draw lines between them. So is that character the daughter of that person brilliant and do they live in the same place do those two scenes happen in that location and then from that then working out what the overall story is which would turn into a father with three daughters yeah and then and then starting a whole new thing which is planning the order of play and what the actual story is and how it's going to work and and uh when you're writing in this notebook is that like you're walking down the street and you you get an idea from somebody you pass or something you hear and you just get your notebook and write it down or is it more uh, controlled and ordered than that. Uh, it, it's neither. It's it's not. I've never been the writer that it always has a notebook ready to write down something interesting. I'd love right. to be that, but it just yeah. doesn't ever happen. Yeah. And it's not controlled and ordered. But yeah. it's like it's more like sitting down to write. I'll go right. I've got uh, two hours. I'm going to write the play. But I know that for a play like Earthquakes, if I dived into the dialogue, it would just get stuck. It would go into the ground really quickly. Yeah. So it's it's sitting down to plan and just redrafting the plan again and again. So. Doing a, you know, doing that spider diagram lots of times, trying to make sense of it, just thinking Brilliant. on the paper. Yeah. Um, so I did that with earthquakes. I did that with thirteen and um, and King Charles the Third as well. It's those multi-stranded plays. Yeah. Though. Tell yeah. me about Charles the Third because it was such a phenomenal success and a, a, a astonishing production. Uh, and it, again, felt as audacious as it did when uh, as the idea of a play about Prince William felt. Uh, you know, earlier. Tell, what was the starting point of Charles the Third? Um, uh, I, I think I'd always also, as well as being interested in William, because he's about the same age, and we were going through life doing, you know, he was at school, I was at school, he went to university, I was at university, right. and that still continued. We got yeah. married around the same time. Yeah. Uh, had kids about the same time. <laughs> Have uh, you met him? No, uh, no, no, it's I've not, not met him. It's not no. the question, you know. Uh, we lost our hair at about the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel you. very close to him, but I suspect he doesn't. That's not mutual. <laughs> you never know. Uh, you never, you know. never know. No. I, I like it. I think it's, yeah, it's all so. Right. Is Charles a bit of a kind of father figure for you? In that? Uh, no, didn't go that far. <laughs> but but I, I suppose I'd always been interested in them, and I knew. And I, from being a kid, I'd been interested in the fact that the Queen could stop a law, but she doesn't. Right. That always felt really interesting and mm. mischievous to me as a kid. And I suppose I thought then I had the idea. That, well, Charles is actually far more likely to do that. And that if he did the natural form, him at the end of his life is a sort of Shakespearean archetype, the man who waited all his life for this one moment. What's he going to do with it? And realising that he could be a Shakespearean figure, mm. then I think that tapped into... Definitely the Diana Ghost came from that earlier play. Yeah. And, and then it starts to go, OK, I, I, I can imagine that if you had the best writer in the world, that would be a really good play. But then you go, but I haven't got that, I've got me. <laughs> 
and so then I just I just did I didn't do anything with the idea for about a year right um, and then mentioned it to Rupert who commissioned it and even then it took another I don't know months and months to get me to actually properly start it because I was just really scared I just thought it's it's quite a neat idea and almost those I find the more scary than ones you, like earthquakes it's just there to be explored it's yeah. quite fun but a neat idea which has to have five acts has to be in this rhythm and you kind of go that's easy to get wrong you know so easy to get that wrong and it requires knowledge I don't have and how was how was writing in uh, iambic pentameter uh, it is written iambic pentameter yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I just had to learn how to do it so I sort of. Um, I saw Ken Campbell um, with his company in Edinburgh about 2003 mm -hmm. come out and go, we know how Shakespeare's plays were written. Uh, they had all the plays in their head so they could improvise I Am a Pentameter. I know that sounds impossible, but we're going to do it now. And then they did. They took suggestions from the audience and improvised a Shakespeare play in front of you. And seeing that was like, oh, you can do that. Yeah. You just need to learn it like a musical rhythm yeah. and, and then riff on it. So I didn't get that good at it, but I did sort of practice it so much that I could sort of get through a line and write it vaguely fluently so that while I was writing, I wasn't counting the syllables on my fingers. And, Great. Um, Great. And then, then it's just lots of rewriting and, and going back over it. You're a drummer as well, aren't you? I, I was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a band, yeah. So the, the notion of rhythm is innate, and even if you're not anymore, it's innate in your metabolism in some way. Yeah, and I love, yeah, I think that's, I love music. And, it, you know, I think you know it when it annoys the hell out of you when an actor gets the rhythm of a line wrong. Yeah. When it's like someone playing a bad note. Yes, yeah. And it really, that always has bothered me. And you and, can hear it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, what you can hear when, yeah, I cannot have looked at a script for 10 years, hear a rehearsal of a line, know that it's wrong, and be right that it's wrong. Yeah. It's that deep yeah. in your yeah. metabolism. It's like hearing a baby cry in a room next door and knowing whether it's your baby That's or right, not. That's right, which you do. Yeah, you completely. <laughs> yeah. Raman Gray said he, he, he got to the point where he was almost, he almost thinks you can listen to a rehearsal room, listen to a play that you know or a production that you're working on and know the intention's wrong without having to see anything. You can just <laughs> hear it. And I really sort of love that idea. I don't know if yeah. it's true, but... It's so innately. The, the rhythm is so connected to the intention of a line. Yeah. The... Uh, Writing for television and film, as you have done, how does that inform you as an artist? How does that excite you? How is that different? Um, well, I haven't, re I haven't really done film. I, I, I tried to do film right. and took a commission and then gave it back because I just got really stuck with it. I, I felt really... I don't know why. I've got to sort of think about why that was, but I didn't really get on with it. Right. But TV... Um, I've always loved TV, and yeah. I love the idea of it being available to everybody, pretty much, who's mm -hmm. got a television, and mm -hmm. the size of that audience, and the fact that still, although we've got streaming, it is still a broadcast medium for now, and and you do get five million people watching something together. Yes, it's it an is. amazing thing, you know, whether it's a Wimbledon final or a yeah. bit of drama. Yeah, you you sense when you're watching it, it's it's, it's a national event, exactly. Yeah, and there's an int intimacy with it that you're in people's homes. Yeah, and there's just you know you and your partner on the sofa yeah. and the drama can start to detonate what's going on between you and your partner. Do you know what I mean? All mm -hmm. those sorts of things because it's in your own home. So I think it has huge power to affect change, mm -hmm. to start conversations, um, often in a subtle way. Like you, you, you know, with sexuality, I think television's done brilliantly often just by putting a character, uh, like putting gay characters in drama and not mentioning it and just getting on with it. Yeah. And actually that changed people's attitudes because they, they just go, oh, well, that's just life. That's just normal. <laughs> And yeah. television is so much part of the backdrop of people's lives that in a, in a subtle way it yeah. can really change things. Yes, I think, I think that's right. So we understand ourselves through the stories we tell ourselves. Mm. It's like Duncan's thing, I mean, it's a different thing, but that thing about you go back to the story you originally told and we're drawn to retelling the same stories. Yeah. Completely. And television is like that on a national level. Yeah. We, yeah. We, it's the story we tell ourselves about who we are. Yeah, and we share all those. We share Angie Watts and Den in yeah. EastEnders as a sort of dramatic... Touch point. Talking to Roy Williams yesterday about uh, Benny Green in Grange Hill, which you'd be too young oh, yeah. to remember, but I've he said it was that, the yeah. first black character that he'd seen right. or recognised. He recognised himself in. Yeah. But the industry surrounding television is brutal and complicated, and the opposite of the Royal Court, though. <laughs> is <laughs> it, it, yeah, I think I think particularly when I was at the Royal Court, the television was in Britain in a really bad place. It was run by producers. Yeah. I think writers were not allowed anywhere near the production process. Right. I think things have changed a lot. So right. now. Most drama is made by a writer, exec producer. And so I've been very lucky 
to arrive at that point, but also to work with really good people, which means that I can be across the whole process from beginning to end. Right. And actually, so on Dr. Foster, you want to get, like on Press Night, you want to get to the, the point of it going out and going, you know what, there's not a thing of this that I haven't signed off. I'm right. proud of all of it and I take responsibility for all of it. Great. And um, if you've got a problem with any of it, then you can talk to me because I love it. That's where you want to get to. And we've made it as a team, but yeah. it is authored and I'm happy about that. And yeah. uh, with Dr. Foster, I feel that like I get to that point. Brilliant. Which is great. It's brilliant. Um, so I think the industry, you have to find little bubbles within an industry like that where you feel like you, you're working with people who genuinely care about the art. Brilliant. Um, and there aren't many of those bubbles, I think, but... That's what you're looking for. Well, yeah. When we start off at the image of you coming to London, uh, inspired, hungry, determined, that can be, uh, but maybe but kind of frustrated as well, that can be very galvanising energy. When we enjoy success, writing successfully for television, Charles III going on Broadway in the West End, uh, all you know, plays produced on the national level, how has that affected that energy and that hunger to write? Has it affected it? In what way? Or has it not affected it? Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a couple of... There's, there's a, certainly a danger that you become isolated from the world. You go from meeting room to meeting room. You go, you know, you're, you're mixing with a very small, narrow segment of society, whether it's te television or theatre. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. tiny. It's, you know, like you were saying about going away and coming back. Yeah. You don't need to go to another city and you realise what... It's a very narrow breed of people. Yeah. So that that can be tricky. But I think for me... Um, and I know as you go to life, you're driven by different things. So I was driven by perhaps a lot more ambition and desire to communicate. And mm. when I did my 20s, now I look at a world which is falling apart and, and, and in real... and terrifying. And I've got two children... And that drives a lot of your desire to want to talk about things and feel like you're saying the things that aren't being said. And for me personally, I think also it's useful to go between television and theatre because at the moment I've written hours of television. Yeah. I've just written a new play. For the Almeida. I, for yeah. the Almeida. But yeah. I'm desperate to go back to theatre. And, and right. not just like <coughs> um, like a big... I, like The play at the Almeida is quite big and Chekhovian. And, yeah. But I'd love to write um, a monologue that that tours round, mm. like, um, village halls. Right, something That's, for Payne's Plow. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or, 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 or Nabokov, the right yeah, something yeah. for Stefan Driscoll. Totally, <laughs> to no, exactly, yeah. totally. Because I think, and also, big, exactly to feed that thing that you're talking about, mm. because I know that the only thing that got me interested in this was trying to always change it up each time yeah. and, and keep myself sort of uh, fresh as an artist. Yes. Um, and you, I, it's so easy to get stuck and just to do versions of the same thing that you pretend look different they look different mm. but actually they're the same kind of they're produced in the same way you wrote them in a you know you're working with the same people yeah um, and you, I, you I'm sure you have but I feel like there's moments where you want to shake it up a bit shake the Etch-a-Sketch and, and put yourself in danger as an artist that's a great answer I really mm. relate to that very strongly I want to ask you uh, a couple more questions time is tight it's a shame I could talk to you for an awful lot longer um you're very conscious of your gender and your ethnicity, I notice. You've raised it yourself kind of three times. And because I'm conscious about asking uh, female writers about their gender and black writers about their ethnicity, I thought I'd ask you about how, how it's affected your yeah. writing or your work. What's, you know, writing as a white male writer? Uh, I think massively. I think, I think, you know, I suppose the moment I really became aware of it was, uh, yeah... Well, no, that's not sure. I became very aware of it at school. I was, right. you know, I look, I, I was, I hope I was clever enough to look around and go, this doesn't look like the whole world to me. And a <laughs> part of the reason to go to Leeds was like, I did, you know, I could, I could have, I suppose, applied to Oxford or Cambridge, and I just wanted to get off that conveyor belt yeah. and go to the north, which yeah. I'd heard about, but <laughs> didn't know anything about, and I was very posh, and I was sure it was going to go wrong. Um, but also go to a city. I'd never lived in a city, and a very different sort of city. Yeah. Uh, and then while I was at Leeds, we, you know, we studied um, post-colonial theory yeah. and all those sorts of concepts, which were all about and gender theory and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Which at that point, still at Leeds University, it was still really theory for me. Right. And it's right. only really coming to London that you yeah. that you um, and travelling as well, yeah. travelling in different ways that you you go. 
you you have very very specific background and um, yeah. upbringing and all yeah. those sorts of things, and I and I think it's really important to be aware of what that the privilege that might have given you or or your perspective on things. Tell me about a Mike Bartlett working day, the ideal working day. What's what would be your dream writing day? Uh, um, it would be it would be really sort of it'd be like yeah just. Or, the, or a real the, one. What do you do? Yeah, I'm just. I'm just what's a writer's yeah, day? Yeah. yeah. I'm so, um, it'd be like like get the kids up and have a really sort of slow start to the day, not sort of panicked. <laughs> yeah. And get them off. They've not started school doing. yet. No, no. Oh, so they, they have someone has to. Yeah. Someone has to be with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but get them sorted out, and then probably, uh, it, it, like the idea would be to to have a like some books on the go, some really interesting books to, to be like, reading. Yeah, like yeah, yeah like. Like books about ideas, or Great. like not novels, but sort of yeah. thinkers, and yes. and then relate that to some YouTube footage <laughs> of those people or whatever. <laughs> Great, um, yeah. uh, and then uh, and then the ideal would be to the ideal day would be today's when I'm going to start a completely new play, yeah. and I don't know anything about what it's going to be about. It's and maybe. Uh, it might be useful as a commission because then I've sort of got to do it, but <laughs> yeah. but I haven't told anyone what I'm going to write about. Great. It's a completely blank page, Great. and by the end of the day, all I need to achieve is some thought. Yeah, <laughs> that I don't even need to have written anything in a notebook. And where would you work? Um, I'd probably work a bit at home, but I'd probably get out to cafes, and they would probably be best to be quite uh, like rubbish cafes, like supermarket. I like supermarket coffee shops. You know, like you're, you know, you're sur- in the daytime. You're surrounded by um, pa- tired parents with their young kids yeah. and older people, and people being, you know, out for a bit of company. And you're there, and I like it because it's sort of it feels very real to me. It feels like yeah. you see little glimpses of real people going about their lives. Whereas if you're in a Soho coffee you know that's yeah. a different thing yeah um, that's very good so and also I'm not going to be bothered I'm not going to see anyone I know that's if it's a <laughs> writing day I must not see anyone I know brilliant I don't want to be aware of you know anything like that do you prefer writing uh, do you prefer writing by hand or writing on screen um, I I write notes by hand I write plays in word right I write screenplays in final draft yeah I well, and then when I'm redrafting, I'll pr- always print out and use a pen to edit, and then Brilliant. type up those changes, which means I destroy the planet in terms of paper. Um, it's important but, to have a printout, though, isn't it? Yeah, Stephen Jeffrey said that to me. You've got to look at it as a concrete thing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's right. Is that what you do? You, do yeah, you do that? I do very exactly the same process. Notes, notes, notes uh, in a in an exercise book by hand. Got the same pen. Dialogue without character names on Word. Yeah. Then I put the characters in and screenplays up, which I do very few of now. I do on final draft. And one more question, if I've got time, uh, I don't really answer it quickly. The first Mike Bartlett play, and the one for the Almeida. What's it called? Uh, the one for the Almeida is called Albion, which might be coming out as this podcast out. When's it? When's it? When's uh, it opens beginning of October? So it might have finished by the time. Oh. <laughs> so it's I either been, it well. it's been a great, <laughs> yeah. the massive success of Albion, <laughs> or I'm really sorry about Albion. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, what have they got in common? Those early Mike Bartlett plays in Albion. What are the, what are you writing about insistently, consciously or unconsciously? What do you return to? Uh, there is, I think, uh, a set a sense of collective responsibility and the failure. Often, I don't know if it's true of Albion. I have to think about it. But often, it's the failure of capitalism to pay any respect to humanity. That oh. that we like to think that that businesses care and they yeah. use language about caring and they don't and if they're not held in check by government yeah. then then they will basically kill you you know in one yeah. way or another um, and so that government role is really important and then it's a case of and that we all have a responsibility in different ways to both that society and the government that holds capitalism in check. And that's always been there in the plays, in all of them. I can find it in Bull, I can find it in Charles III, I can find it in a lot of the plays of your Earthquakes 13, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's one of those things that you try not to think too much. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, for if sure. you, The worst thing would be, you want to always reserve the right to write about a completely different... Yes, of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think that seems to be there. 
Yeah. Mike Barlow, thank yeah. you very much indeed. Thank you. So we have, we have Anushka, who's going to come in with her postscript. She might have some footnotes. She might have some facts for you. I do have a footnote. Have you? What's the footnote? Are you okay? Yeah. Okay, so the footnote is... Harvey and the Wallbangers yeah. is not a punk band. No way. It's a 1980s jazz vocal. Oh, my God, of so course. So we just need to clear that up for the listener. For the fool. And FYI, because it was like the main drink um, I had growing up, if you want to make it, it's vodka, Galliano and orange juice. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good, very good. And then... I don't have a Dr. Foster question. But you're a big fan of Dr. Foster. Because it's fucking amazing and nothing needs to be asked about it. <laughs> I have quite a few Dr. Foster. Did your partner watch it in the end? Uh, yeah. Oh, few. Yeah. She should be well, no, the out. truth is she didn't, she didn't watch episode four until six months after it went out and I said, that you still weird. haven't seen it. I know. She saw episode five but she didn't see any that need to so watch the middle one. And then the last thing was, I can't believe you skirted over this. What was the name of the band you were in? <laughs> I don't think we should get into that. I was oh. so pleased you skirted over. It was called. Are we still running? It was called. It was called Mecca. Come on. No explanation needed. I think it was more bingo than. Um... That's it. That's yeah. my note. That's very good. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the shop at the theatre. Come to the theatre. Come and see the plays. We're at Sloan Square. Come along. Come and see everything. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre. It's presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by the remarkable Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.